said you wanted to know how to get to Capone. Do you really want to get him? You see what I'm saying? What are you prepared to do? Everything within the law. And then what are you prepared to do? If you open the ball on these people, Mr. Nash, you must be prepared to go all the way. Because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. That's how you get Capone. And you're listening to Sean Connery and Kevin Costner. And of course, that's the classic, The Untouchables. And the writer of those words, and my goodness, what words, is David Mamet. And his new book, Chicago, is just terrific. And it's a novel. And David is also a terrific playwright. And he has written such classics as American Buffalo and Glengarry Glen Ross, which itself became a classic film. He's also written and directed his own gems, House of Games, a classic about conmen, Homicide, The Spanish Prisoner, State of Maine. And he's also won acclaim for several screenplays, including The Verdict with Paul Newman, Wag the Dog, The Postman Always Rings Twice, The Untouchables, Hoffa, and The Edge, which, by the way, get it on Netflix. Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. It's terrific. Well, we had a chance to sit down with David Mamet earlier, and here's our recorded conversation about his book, Chicago, and about his life. David, in this book, one of the characters, central characters, is the city itself, and it's a city you grew up in. What is Chicago? Tell people who've never been there, give them a feel for this city. How's it different than San Francisco or New York? Because it's not New York, and it's not San Francisco. No, people said, I think it was Mencken who said it was the first American city that wasn't European, was Chicago. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about this, because, you know, I wrote the book, and there's certainly a I mean, it would be un-Chicagoan, but accurate to say there's an ethos there. But I was thinking perhaps it's something different. Perhaps it's something to do with geography. Every time I go to to San Francisco, for the first hour, I'm saying, honey, send my clothes. I love it here. And after about four hours, I'm saying, yoke me out. Get me out of here. It's just something about the energy there that's it's odd. Maybe it's because of where I grew up. And then I think about the Los Angeles thing, about the geographical energy here. That's this little spit of land, which is artificially maintained between this uncaring desert and this uncaring ocean. And there's a very bizarre kind of life that goes around. And if you think about Los Angeles literature, what there is of it, almost all of it takes place at night. It's, you know, Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and Joseph Hansen and novels about mistaken identity and people not knowing who they are. It's all the same book. And it has something to do with geography. And if you go back and look at uh, Richard Henry Dana, you know, writing about landing on the coast here, just the south of Santa Barbara, and whatever that was, 1820 or 1830, he says the same thing. He says that the people didn't really live there. So there's something odd about these two cities to my sensibility. On the other hand, Chicago and New York have an internal energy that I think comes from geography. I mean, they're the confluence of a lot of... Um, uh, in, in both cases, of a great body of water, a great river system, and land transportation. That's why the people s- settled there. And there's, I think, something intrinsic, I hate to say in the rocks and stones, but maybe it is. But what do I know? 
Yeah, we did a terrific hour on not the Chicago fire, but what happened after, David. And by the way, it was an interesting story why the city built burned down, because it had grown so fast in only 30 years. And all these buildings were crowded together in a long, arid summer, and poof, it goes up in smoke. What was remarkable, David, was how quickly Chicago rebuilt the energy and the power of the spirit of the people, the practicality and the just the grit of these people. It was remarkable. Yeah, well, there's always been a great energy. You know, it's been a town of working people, you know, and, and New York has been a town of merchants and, um, uh, uh, and plutocrats, you know, that, the, that's, that's just what it is. I mean, to the point now where they're today, there's no lower class and no middle class in, in New York City. But Chicago's always been the working people. Yep. And, and let's drill down a little bit on your childhood in Chicago, because you grew up here. This, this place is in your blood. Uh, talk about, if you can, David, your dad, because I think so much of your writing, uh, I think, comes from that relationship, at least maybe not consciously, but certainly subconsciously. Talk about that. Well, my dad and his brother, Henry, um, all four of my grandparents are, are immigrants. They all came over from uh, Poland, which was then the on the passports, it says Russia, Warsaw, Russia, and the Chubichev Russia was back and forth. At that time, it was controlled by Russia. Poland didn't exist for those 20 years. And um, my uncle was born over there. My dad's three years younger. He's born right over here. And they moved to, to Chicago from Brooklyn. And um, my dad was raised by a single mother, my, my grandmother. And most of his life in the Depression. And she didn't speak English very well. And so they were very poor. And he worked real hard. He got got out of the army, and he went to a junior college. And then he got into Northwestern University Law School. And I, I think he I think he might have forged his uh, credentials to get into Northwestern University Law School. And he graduated first in his class because he just he was wicked smart. And um, he went to work. He clerked for Arthur Goldberg for a while. Then he worked for um, Elmer Gertz, who was a very famous Chicago attorney. So there's that. So then before Levittown, there was this community, I think it was the first planned community after the war, called Park Forest, Illinois. And so I think I was like, one, we moved down to Park Forest, and there's early Kodachrome films of these wonderful little brick houses the size of somebody's small garage today, you know, and everybody was happy as a clam, you know, because these were poor immigrant kids, depression kids, war kids, and all of a sudden, because of the GI Bill, and the uh, uh, the building of these uh, uh, developments, they could have a house. Something was just the, the impossible dream. And then we moved to a community called South Shore. It was a little Jewish enclave of a few blocks between a uh, Catholic neighborhood and a black neighborhood. Black black neighborhood was the other side of Stony Island, and the Catholic neighborhood was the other side of 71st Street, and there like five square blocks of Jews living there. And we used to get beat up all the time. And um, the uh, the neighbor was kind of interesting. Some interesting people came out of that little, it's called South Shore Highlands, I think. I I came out of the Larry Ellison, who founded Oracle, came out of there. And Sherry Lansing, who was the head of Columbia for many, many years, came out of there. And uh, uh, Seymour Hirsch of the New York Times came out of there. Several other people who did rather well coming out of this little dinky enclave. And when we come back, we learn what happens to David Mamet. And my goodness, how far he came from this little dinky part of Chicago. More with our conversation with David Mamet after these messages.
Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with novelist, playwright, screenwriter, David Mamet, and his new book, Chicago. We're talking about his life and the town he grew up in, and David entering high school. And so I went to the public schools when my last couple of years of uh, high school, I moved in with my uh, dad and my stepmother, Judy. I went to a magnificent school called the Francis Parker School and started, became friendly with the family that owned Second City. And I started working as a, as a busboy at Second City. So I'd see three shows a night of improvisational comedy, which really gave me the bug. And then uh, there we are up to date. Talk about, if you can, the influence of your dad. That is, psychologically. You know, it, it sounded to me like he was one of those old-school tough guys and nothing you could do would quite measure up. You, you have a quote in, a, in an article in New Yorker where you said, the virtues expounded by him were not creative but remedial. Let's stop being Jewish and let's stop being poor. Talk about those kinds of words. Well, you know, I, I think about my dad many times every day with thanks. And he grew up in a family without a father. His father deserted the family. And so he was raised by a marvelous mother, my grandmother, whom he adored. But he was a little bit of an old school father. But the most more important thing is that he was a magnificent role model because he worked like a dog. He would work all day and come home and change into his pajamas and a bathrobe and then eat his dinner sitting at the dining room table while working on the brief for the next day. And one day he was working really hard. He was very anxious. I said, you know, Dad, I said, you know, don't worry about the results. You're doing your best. And he said, they don't pay me to do my best. They pay me to win. So a lot of times I'm thinking of giving up and the times that I don't give in to giving up. Uh, I I remember, you know, like like him, I got the best job in the world and I have a talent for it and it pays the rent. So I, I better work hard at it. You know, there's a quote in that other New York, that New York article I told you about that was, I think, telling. You say, quote, uh, your time at the Hull House Theater in Chicago. It was the first time in my confused young life that I had learned that work is love. Talk about that. Well, Hull House there, there was a great theater run by a man named Bob Sickinger. And all the community theaters around the country were doing Charlie's Aunt and the Impossible Years. And once in a while, if they were really bold they do the importance of being earnest you know but Sickinger was doing the brig by uh, 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 Kenneth Brown and the three penny opera and the Maurice Scal plays and he just kept everybody there all night rehearsing and we all knew I don't know how he knew but we did that when we were doing those plays there wasn't any better theater being done that night any place in the world it was just it was just pure love and, and you know people hurried home from 12 hours at their straight job and spent 12 hours working with Bob it was it was marvelous one of your colleagues said we invented this myth of the Chicago theater scene what made the Chicago scene so great was that no one cared the audience didn't care they were profoundly indifferent to everything we did there is real freedom in that isn't there David well, there is, but you know, I don't know who said that, because I don't know whether that's that, true. That was Gregory Mosher said that. Oh, Greg said that. Yeah. No, but no, that's not, that's, I think that's a little bit poetic, because what I remember is quite the opposite. When I had, you know, me and Billy Macy and Steve Schachter, Patty Cox, we had our theater over on, on Halstead Street, and um, people would come up to you on the street, neighborhood people, and they'd say, hey, there was a good play last month, Dave. They understand that they're entitled to have a good time, and uh, no one's asking them to be esthetes. 
but rather we're grateful for them to show up. And if they say, geez, that was great, I'm going to tell my friends, what could be better? I don't think they were indifferent. I, th I think that two things made the theater scene. One was the audience, and the other one was uh, Richard Christensen of the Chicago Daily News. And what, what were your thoughts about critics as you were a young writer coming up? I mean, it, it's, 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 uh, they're assholes. You know, I mean, they were then, they are now, but there are exceptions. And a couple of the great exceptions came out of the city of Chicago, and, and one of them was Roger Ebert, rest in peace, along with Gene Siskel, who did a lot to shape American movie making. And the other one was Richard Christensen of the Chicago Daily News, along with Glenna Sice of the Sun-Times, to encounter critics who said, wow, this is great, thank you, here's what I liked. They understood themselves as part of the theatrical process, rather than uh, as, as people who are given a, a free ride uh, to CARP. Well, you've done something that very few people have done. We've had some novelists make their way to screenwriting, and that's happened quite a number of times for Mario Puzio. I mean, we could name a lot of folks who've written novels and written great, screen, great screenplays. But you go ahead and you start this thing called screenwriting, which is so different, David. It's such a different talent. So many actors have a hard time going from the big screen to the big stage. It's such a different craft. Um, how did you, did you just do it? Did you just have a sense for it? Uh, talk about that transition. Well, I worked hard at it. You know, when I was a kid, I went to the Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater in New York for a year. And before you came, they gave you a reading list of about 50 books. So, of course, I read them. I loved them. And a lot of them were by the Russians. And uh, Stanislavski and uh, Vakhtangov and Meyerhold and Nemirovich Danchenko, and they all wrote a book. And some of them were by the people who'd worked with the Moscow Art Theater and then went into film. And I was really fascinated by their theory of filmmaking. And what they said was, the audience understands film as the juxtaposition of images. The image doesn't need to be inflected. The juxtaposition tells the story. The famous example is a young woman, shot one. A young woman, her head is down on her arms. She raises her head. Shot two, a judge sitting at a high dais wraps his gavel. Okay. Example two, shot woman, shot one, same shot, young woman, her head on her hands, she raises her head. Shot two, uh, half seen through a door, a baby standing up in a crib crying, right? So the, the idea we get from the first is hearing the verdict, and the idea we get from the second is a mother's attention, but the first shot's exactly the same. So if you look at what great film actors are doing, they're doing damn little. What they have is the great courage and understanding not to help the thing along. You write a lot about this in True and False, by the way. You have a, you have a lot to say in that book about acting, but one of the interesting things was, was what you had to say about the method acting and, uh, and a lot of the things that were being taught in New York at the time. And I don't think you were a terribly big fan of the method to be charitable, David. Well, there's nothing there. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a fake. It was Lee Strasberg and my teacher, Stanford Meisner, were the, both the babies of the group theater. And, you know, they were both started out actors didn't do well. So they became directors and theoreticians and they formed two schools, uh, the Meisner school and the Strasberg school that were an attempt on their part, legitimate attempt to understand what acting was because they were drawn to it. They loved it. They couldn't do it. They tried to understand it. So what Lee Strasberg did, I don't think he did it on purpose. He just got very, very lucky, is he had a, a, a beginning reputation. And so everybody in the country wanted to get into the actor's studio. 
So he would see a thousand actors and pick two. So who's he going to pick? He picks the people with the greatest talent, right? So they are going to reflect glory on the actor's studio, not from anything that he taught them, but from the fact that, that he chose them. Yeah, and so all of that psychological warfare, that the, and I studied with a couple of these characters, and they were more Svengali than anything else. I was repulsed. I had played basketball and played sports, and sports is all about activity and action. It's doing. And in large measure, these people were putting me on a couch, and I, I actually resented it, David. Well, it's terrible, and what it, it, it calls for a, um, a codependence, uh, a folly I do between the teacher and, and the student. And the, the teacher has to you know, pretend he's teaching something, he may think he is. And the student has to pretend he's learning something, he may think he is. But what he's really undergoing is shame. And so the only way that he can overcome his shame is either to just quit and say, fuck you, I'll figure it out myself, or to say, let me try harder. So what you see is a lot of actors who, quote, study the, quote, method, trying harder, which all that does take you out of the scene. And when we come back more with David Mamet, we promise not to take you out of the scene. Indeed, we're going to put you in a scene as we go out. The movie Glengarry Glen Ross, based on Mamet's play. In this scene, Alec Baldwin is giving a motivational speech to some real estate salesman in a rainy office in downtown Chicago. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. You get the picture? You laughing now? You got leads. Mitch and Murray paid good money. Get their names to sell them. Turn to our conversation with author David Mamet, the book Chicago. Let's pick up where we left off. You have a, there's almost a, a running theme in a lot of what you write, David, about the expert culture. And you have this great line. And by the way, long before you came to conservatism, there was a line I'll never forget you wrote. And I'm, I'm approximating, and I don't remember where I read it, but it said something like this. And you were speaking directly to me, who was trying to get direction from these gurus, when in the end you were saying, find it yourself, dummy. It's okay. And you said, if you want to learn how to act, uh, act. If you want to learn how to write, write. If you want to learn how to direct, direct. The audience will teach you. Uh, don't go to college. Don't listen to that professor. You were really encouraging all of us, young actors, young artists, young writers, to write in front of audiences as quickly as possible and learn from that experience, which, of course, David, even though at the time you didn't know it, that's a very free market idea that the audience, the consumers, the market will teach. 
Yeah, well, I guess it was. Yeah, I guess it was. But I mean, they certainly taught. I don't know any other way to learn how to write a, a, a play and to put it on in front of an audience. Because if you're writing for a teacher, you've just uh, uh, subjected yourself to slavery. You're saying everything's dependent. I'm not a free person. Everything's dependent on the opinion of someone else. When in fact, the opinion of the audience is not is not mitigated through intellectuality. They're going to give you a, like. Billy Wilder said, individually they may be dumb cuffs, but collectively they're a genius. Yeah. You know, that, that, and when, when you got to, when your life, when you're living your livelihood and your self-respect depends on a verdict from which there is no appeal, you're probably going to start paying attention to it. And we're talking to David Mamet. His book is Chicago. It's a novel. Pick it up. The dialogue from the beginning, he'll own you. We're going to get to that in a little bit, a little bit more about his life. By the way, Mario Andretti's life, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. It's up there. We finished it. It's beautiful. Billy Graham's life, that's up there. And, he, and Johnny Cash, tomorrow night is his birthday, and we celebrate it. We celebrate it every year. You're going to hear from Johnny. You're going to hear from Rick Rubin and a lot of musicians. It's a remarkable hour, OurAmericanNetwork.org. David, you write about talent, and you write about courage, and you say this. You said, a concern with one's talent is like a concern with one's height, it is an attempt to appropriate prerogatives which the gods have already exercised. Talk about talent. I don't know what it is. You know, a lot of people, I, I, I'm doing a bunch of publicity because um, I just wrote this book. And so I kind of like people to know about the book. But I stopped doing publicity for years and years and years because it made me feel stupid. And I said to one guy, I said, one guy, I just started doing publicity. He said, why, why did you stop doing publicity? I said, because it made me feel stupid. And I said, well, and he said, well, that's ridiculous. I said, well, see, because what I, what I realized, most of the questions that get asked are unanswerable. They're in effect rhetorical questions, which are statements. Right. Say, my God, how did you do those rhetorical question? There's no answer to it. I don't know. You know, it beats the hell out of me. I could sit on and try to figure it out, but it ain't going to help you. Now, one of the great geniuses of modern life, I think, is Bill Waterston, who did um, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, right? And I love Kelvin and Hobbes, but Bill, later on in his career, did a, a kind of compendium, and he said, oh, here's how I got this idea, here's how I got that idea. And he just he, he knocked the sheen off it. I thought, man, you're coming very close to talking me out of appreciating the, uh, I don't want to know how you did it. Right. And P.S., you don't know how you did it. That's so true. And, and then all the mystery's gone and, and, and don't tidy it up for me and don't explain what it all means. What's the, uh, they're just the worst questions for artists and they're even worse for the audience, David. By the way, in that same thing on talent, you wrote this, a common sign in a boxing gym. Boxers are ordinary men with extraordinary determination. I would rather be able to consider myself in that way than to consider myself one of the talented. And if I may, I think you would too. Talk about courage, David. It's a it's something that I think is in short supply, and I think you, in your own way, write a bit about that as well. Well, I mean, there's a great line in in Three Kings where it's a George Clooney and he's head of a he's in charge of some platoon and some go, about to go into combat and the kid says I'm scared and George says, uh, well, you know, you got to do the acting and get the courage afterward, and the kid says that's. F and Joyce says, yeah, you bet it is, but that's the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Let's talk about your, your faith walk, if we can. I mean, and, and you start to write in, in the mid-2000s about being Jewish and what that means. Um, talk about this ex exploration into faith and religion. Well, I got married in 1991, and uh, my wife, who is, uh, she has a bunch of uh, Jewish ancestors on her 
one side of her family, she grew up in Scotland, her parents are British, and they were of no particular religion. And she said, well, we have to have a Jewish wedding. I said, well, what an odd thing to say. Well, well why? Why is that? She said, well, you're Jewish. And I thought, well, gosh, that's true. So she started taking introduction to Judaism classes for uh, people not of, not, of, not of Jewish faith. And I started going with her class. I realized I don't know anything. I was raised in this uh, Episcopal reform movement in Chicago. It was completely assimilationist. And it was like, you know, it was like taking the bath in cold water with your clothes on. There's just nothing to it. And that the, the assimilationist streak of American Jews, especially after World War II, is completely understandable. I mean, I was born in 47 and 45. They were throwing my people alive into ovens, for Christ's sake. It's no, it's no wonder that the Jews wanted to assimilate, but they threw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, uh, so we started investigating Judaism, so she converted, and we started going to synagogue and learned Hebrew and found, my God, this is, this is a magnificent religion. And all, you know, all of us red diaper babies who said, oh my God, the magnificence of the Inuit or the magnificence of the American Indian or the magnificence of the African American or the blah, blah, blah. Why is it that my particular ethnicity is the only one that doesn't have a beautiful tradition? And we found out uh, in effect that it does. And a pretty old one too, David, a pretty old one. And yeah. it's ama- I think it's fascinating that people go through this world not knowing who or what they are. And it must have been something to you to discover your own history. It was grand. I mean, the other thing about history is that the people who came over in like right around world, before and after World War One was my my grandparents. They left everything behind. I mean, the idea that one would know one's great grandparents or one's great uncle was unheard of. I mean, everybody I knew in my little community growing up. Their, either their parents or their grandparents were immigrants. They had no artifacts from the old country. They, they didn't have that many relatives from the country. If they had any at all, they probably either got killed by Hitler or Stalin. And the kids were being raised in this uh, kind of phony, baloney, fuzzy little bunnies uh, uh, reform movement. And Judaism was reduced to, quote, good works. It was, it was reduced to the Democratic Party. And when we come back, more of our conversation with David Mamet, author of Chicago. We're going to dig into the book. Right now, we want to throw to a clip from one of the great pieces of writing from Mamet, and it's the 1982 screenplay from the movie The Verdict. Here's Paul Newman playing Frank Galvin, a once-promising Boston attorney who was fired from an elite firm because he was an alcoholic. This Irish Catholic guy, down on his luck, gets handed a case from a friend. It's an open-and-shut med-mal case, and he should probably just take the money. But he goes to visit a girl in a coma, and he sees her, and his Catholic conscience is sparked, and he becomes a lawyer again. This is his remarkable closing argument. We become weak. We doubt ourselves. We doubt our beliefs. We doubt our institutions. And we doubt the law. But today, you are the law. You are the law. Not some book, not the lawyers, not a a marble statue, or the trappings of the court. See, those are just symbols of our desire to be just. They are They are, in fact, a prayer, a fervent and a frightened prayer. 
prayer. In my religion, they say act as if you had faith. Faith will be given to you if, if we are to have faith in justice, we need only to believe in ourselves and act with justice. See, I believe there is justice in our hearts. Turn to our conversation with novelist, screenwriter, and playwright David Mamet, and we had left off talking about David's spiritual journey, and we continue now with our recorded conversation. I would assume that your 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 exploration into faith, almost inexorably, David, led you into a sort of a political transformation. One probably prompted the other in some respects, didn't it? Well, I think you're probably right. You know, for example, I'll tell you this. I wrote a book called The Wicked Son because I started thinking it's called anti-Semitism and the, and the Jewish self-loathing and the Jews. And I started thinking about Jewish anti-Semitism and Jewish assimilationism. I thought very long and hard about it. Wrote a pretty good book and Fran Lebowitz read it. And she said, oh my God, wait till you see what the left is going to do to you. And I thought, well, I don't know what you mean. I mean, you know, I'm on the left. I don't know what the left would find objectionable to about the book. But apparently some people got upset because I was telling the truth. And so the more I studied uh, 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 Judaism and, uh, and uh, Jewish literature and the, and the Torah, the more I realized that that's flat out the inspiration for the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, that it comes absolutely from a Judeo-Christian understanding of the world, and that that understanding has, has kept us together for and fighting for 240 years. Indeed, and 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 what's what's fascinating about this this journey of yours, David, is that ultimately you end up writing a, an article in the Village Voice, and I don't think anyone was prepared for that. And were you at the reaction? Well, I wasn't prepared for it because the article that the title that they gave to the article was the original title of the article was political civility, because I, my rabbi at the time had been speaking very. Uh, very vehemently about uh, about respecting each other's opinion and uh, uh, hearing the other fellow out and having the ability to tell the other guy's opinion back to him such that he says, yes, that's true. And so I wrote an article called Political Civility. And in the article, I said, I said I, I, I'm even being uncivil to myself. I said, for example, for years I've been referring to myself as a brain-dead liberal. I said, well, that's just not civil, bubbity-bubbity-boo. So the Village Voice takes it, and they put a scare headline on it, yep. why I am no longer a brain-dead liberal, and all my friends became acquaintances. Let's talk about fiction, because this, this book, it's about so much, and I don't like giving away too much, but it's about a place, it's about a time, and I, I'm going to quote J.J. Johnston to you, because he's a great actor from Chicago, and he said of you this, Dave got hit with the gangster bag early. These crooks, most of them have pipe dreams. They can't do anything right. Like they say, these guys would F up a two-car funeral. And so these wise guys, this edgy part of life that was a big part of Chicago, 
Well, it becomes a big part of your book. Uh, talk about why a piece of fiction now and why this book. And it feels like it's hitting so many of the themes you've been playing with your entire life. Well, I was just having a time in my life. I started writing one afternoon. You know, I just got sick of myself for being such a lazy swine and got to be four o'clock. So I started writing a little sketch about something or other in Chicago. The next day I wrote another one. After a while, I said, oh, maybe there's a book here. And uh, when you grow up in Chicago, you grow up with, uh, you know, just like um, uh, in, in Naples, you know, you grow up, you're going to be expected to sing. In Chicago, the, the ethos, at least that we grew up with in my generation on the south side, was the gangster ethos. That's where Al Capone lived. Your great-grandmother brought him groceries. He once gave a turkey to your aunt. Oh, that's where the cop, blah, blah, blah. That's where Dean O'Banion got shot. I went to high school across the street from the garage where they had the St. Valentine's Day massacre. And uh, I used to walk in the park where Nails Morton's horse kicked him to death. And that's kind of... But those were kind of like the the bumping posts, if you will, of of Chicago geography. It's all gangsters. Yeah, and and the the process of writing for you, uh, it, it's you know I, I have something here of you talking about how at least when you were writing movies, you hit it on file cards first, and then you said when the progression of incident incidents is so clear that you no longer need the cards, then you're ready to write. And then we learn that you write very fast once that happens. That true still for this and and for you? Well, a, a, a novel's really really different because you get you get to muck about, you know, you get to expatiate a little bit. And uh, but there's two things that the 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 they're equally important in a play and perhaps less equally important in a novel. In a play, there has to be the immediacy of the line. The line has to be beautiful and poetic, and line has to make sense. The second one is every line has to put forward the plot. If both of those things aren't true, you might have a, a an okay play, but you're not going to have a good, and you'll never have a great play. It has to do both things. Whichever you do first, you're going to have to do the second one second. If you start off and you write a plot of the play, you're going to have to go back and make sure that each line, each instance of each interchange stands by itself rather than simply being tendentious and putting forward the plot. And if you do the other thing, you write this great scene but doesn't put forward the plot, you either got to throw it out and start again or make it put forward the plot. Because all dramatic writing is about making the audience wonder what happens next. Yep. You can make them wonder what happens next and also delight them in what's happening. Now you're writing a pretty good play. Yep. So you need, both of these things need to be done in a novel too, but perhaps the, the, the plot is not as important. You get, you get to say, oh, by the way. Yeah. You get to take detours. In fact, that's why people read. They want a good detour from, from now and then. But, you know, you're, you're almost talking like uh, Hitchcock was listening to Truffaut. And, and on that great interview that we've covered once here on this show, I mean, Hitchcock was the master at moving that plot. and hurt. I mean, his plots hurtled along and the characters just hurtled along with them. Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, talk and talk of do you, do you teach anymore, David? Do you have an inclination to teach? You used to teach. I'd seen you teach. It 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 it, it was really remarkable because you weren't a typical teacher. You weren't playing the Svengali game at all. You were an anti-teacher teacher, almost like a Bear Bryant. You were more like a coach than you were a teacher. And then you were pushing people out to do stuff. Uh, do you have any inclination to do that anymore at this stage of your life? Well, you know that's that's a, that's a very gratifying to hear you say that because I said you know. I don't have a lot of respect for most teachers. I've seen a lot of them, you know, both in the private schools and public schools, schools I worked at, schools I sent my kids to. Some of them are geniuses. 
Some of them are time service, just like any other profession. But I don't think the fact that someone's a teacher entitles them to our respect flat out. Let's see how good they do. But what we remembered all through our lives is the coach. It's true. Our, we did an hour on Bear Bryant, uh, David, and we talked to people who hadn't been under his influence for 40 years. And every single one of them had a moment and a memory. And it was all the same. He taught me how to be a man. He taught me how to dig deeper. It wasn't the actual X's and O's. It was something so much more spiritual. It had a spiritual dimension to it. And it was this guy seeing these guys' capacity and that there was more inside them than they knew. And uh, I just think there are very few people who have that gift. And you had it. And I, I'm sure you still have it. And the question I'd always, I always ask people is when we have these gifts, uh, does God command us to, to apply those gifts? Um, well, so th- that's why I ask. These guys came to me last year. They're, they're doing some um, downloadable thingy called Masterclass. And they have a bunch of celebrities, actors and writers and uh, uh, physicists and blah, blah, blah. And they asked me what I do. And I said, and I thought about it. I said, yeah, sure. So I was in the, the studio for several days and um, they added it down to, I think, a five, it might be even five hours. And they prepared it magnificently. And they talked me through various aspects of writing and dramatic construction and uh, uh, so forth. And I'm very happy that I did that. And uh, I teach once in a while back at my theater company. I'm a member of New York, the Atlantic Theater Company. But um, I enjoy, I, I, I kind of enjoy it too much. You know, I, and, and I, I, I don't want to get in the kid's way. <laughs> well, that's so true. We felt, I felt that just sitting in on two in New York that you didn't want to get in our way. And that shows a lot of faith in us in the end and not in yourself. Uh, David Mamet is the writer Chicago is the book. It's a novel. Pick it up at Amazon.com. Chicago, again, at Amazon. We'll put it up on our website and take a listen. And uh, David, thank you so much for this time. Oh, you're so welcome. We're done. Oh, boo-hoo. I'm having such a good time. (laughs) It was terrific, David. And that was our recorded conversation with author David Mamet, his new book, Chicago. Go to Amazon.com now and get it. The dialogue crackles. It's everything you'd ever expect from a David Mamet novel or any piece of writing And by the way, you know his work from Glengarry Glen Ross. You know it from movies. We played a clip from The Verdict with Paul Newman. And of course, we're going to leave with another clip. But again, David Mamet, Chicago. It's a novel. You won't be able to put it down. Pick it up at a store near you or go online. And again, the novel Chicago by David Mamet. And so we leave with a clip and go and pick up this movie on Netflix if you get a chance called The Edge. 1997, and it stars Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. Hopkins is a billionaire, has a beautiful bride, and Alec Baldwin is a, well, he's a photographer with an eye for that young bride. There's a plane crash in the Alaska wild. Uh, Kodiak Bear is on the hunt for the party that's lost. And it takes the old man to teach this young guy how to fight this stalking bear or die. And here's a pep scene in which the older Hopkins is trying to stir the courage of the younger paramour played by Alec Baldwin. Oh, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. Say I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. I'm going to kill the bear. Say it again. I'm going to kill the bear. And again. I'm going to kill the bear. Good. What one man can do, another can do. What one man can do, another can do. And again. What one man can do, another can do. And again. What one man can do, another can do. Yeah. You're damn right. 
This is Our American Stories, and again, the novel, Chicago, and the author, David Mamet. Pick up the book however you can. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to, well, just about anything. And we do eulogies, we do stories of songs, and every once in a while, we just go right back to some of the American classics and some of the great literature of the past, stuff that, well, schools just aren't paying attention to anymore, but we're a part of our heritage for so long. And one of those writers is the American poet Walt Whitman. And his poem here that we're about to play, a recording of it, a terrific recording of it, is Pioneers, O Pioneers. And it was first published in 1865. The poem was written as a tribute to Whitman's fervor for the great westward expansion in the United States that led to the California gold rush and exploration of the Far West. And by the way, we've spent a lot of time on this subject with our Lewis and Clark stories, the most epic road trip ever. But right now, here's Walt Whitman's poem as read by Will Gear with accompaniment by Ennio Marconi's Ecstasy of Gold. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Come, my tan-faced children. Follow well in order. Get your weapons ready. Have you your pistols? Have you your sharp-edged axes, pioneers, oh pioneers? For we cannot tarry here. We must march, my darlings. We must bear the brunt of danger. We, the youthful, sinewy races, all the rest on us depend. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Oh, you youths, western youths, so impatient, full of action, full of manly pride and friendship. Plain I see you, western youths, see you tramping with the foremost. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Have the elder races halted? Do they droop and end their lesson, wearied over there beyond the seas? We take up the task eternal, and the burden, and the lesson. Pioneers, oh pioneers. All the past we leave behind. We debouch upon a newer, mightier world, varied world. Fresh and strong the world we seize. World of labor and the march. Pioneers, oh pioneers. We detachments steady throwing, down the edges, through the passes, up the mountain steep, conquering, holding, daring, venturing as we go the unknown ways. Pioneers, oh pioneers. We primeval forests felling, we the rivers stemming, vexing we and piercing deep the mines within. We the surface broad surveying, we the virgin soil upheaving. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Colorado men are we, from the peaks gigantic, from the great Sierras and the mighty plateaus, from the mine and from the gully, from the hunting trail we come, pioneers, oh pioneers. From Nebraska, from Arkansas, central inland race are we. From Missouri, 
with the continental blood intervened. All the hands of comrades clasping, all the southern, all the northern pioneers. Oh, pioneers. Oh, resistless, restless race. Oh, beloved race in all. Oh, my breast aches with tender love for all. Oh, I mourn and yet exult. I am wrapped with love for all. Pioneers. Oh, pioneers. Raise the mighty mother mistress, waving high the delicate mistress, over all the starry mistress. Bend your heads all. Raise the fanged and warlike mistress, stern, impassive, weaponed mistress. Pioneers, oh pioneers. See my children, resolute children. By those swarms upon our rear, we must never yield or falter. Ages back in ghostly millions frowning there behind us urging. Pioneers, oh pioneers. On and on the compact ranks, with accessions ever waiting, with the places of the dead quickly filled, through the battle, through defeat, moving yet and never stopping, pioneers, oh pioneers. Oh, to die advancing on. Are there some of us to droop and die? Has the hour come? Then upon the march we fittest die. Soon and sure the gap is filled. Pioneers, oh pioneers. All the pulses of the world, falling in, they beat for us, with the Western movement beat, holding single or together, steady moving to the front, all for us, pioneers, oh pioneers. Life's involved and varied pageants, all the forms and shows, all the workmen at their work, all the seamen and the landsmen, all the masters with their slaves, pioneers, oh pioneers. All the hapless, silent lovers, all the prisoners in the prisons, all the righteous and the wicked, all the joyous, all the sorrowing, all the living, all the dying, pioneers, oh pioneers. I too, with my soul and body, we a curious trio, picking, wandering on our way, through these shores amid the shadows, with the apparitions pressing, pioneers, oh pioneers. Blow the darting bowling orb. Blow the brother orbs around. All the clustering suns and planets. All the dazzling days. All the mystic nights with dreams. Pioneers, oh pioneers. These are of us. They are with us. All for primal needed work. While the followers there in embryo wait behind. We today's procession heading. We the route for travel clearing. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Oh, you daughters of the West. Oh, you young and elder daughters. Oh, you mothers and you wives. Never must you be divided. In our ranks you move united. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Minstrels latent on the prairies. Shrouded bards of other lands, you may rest. You've done your work. Soon I hear you coming warbling. Soon you rise and tramp amid us. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Not for delectation sweet. Not the cushion and the slipper. Not the peaceful and the studious. Not the riches safe and parling. Not for us the tame enjoyment. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Do the feasters gluttonous feast? Do the corpulent sleepers sleep? Have they locked and bolted doors? Still be ours, the diet hard, and the blanket on the ground, pioneers, oh pioneers. Has the night descended? Was the road of late so toilsome? 
did we stop, discouraged, nodding on our way. Yet a passing hour I yield you in your tracks to pause oblivious, pioneers, O oh pioneers, till with sound of trumpet, far, far off the daybreak call. Hark, how loud and clear I hear it whine. Swift to the head of the army, swift spring to your places, pioneers, O oh pioneers. And there you have it, folks. It doesn't get better than that. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. And that's following Lewis and Clark and their group of men called the Corps of Discovery along their two-and-a-half-year adventure exploring the American West. Here's our own Alex Cortez with our 23rd feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago. The crisis with Charbonneau. The subject of today's episode, told by our resident Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. So Lewis and Clark come to the Mandan and Hidatsa villages on October 26, 1804. Almost immediately, they meet a man named Toussaint Charbonneau, who's in his 40s. He has two young Shoshone wives. Um, bird woman, Zakagawea, and otter woman. And Charbonneau comes to the site of the expedition's encampment where they're about to start building their winter quarters. And he presents himself and says, you need me. I speak Hidatsa. You've got to be able to communicate with the Hidatsa. And I'm the only white person who can really do that. And it looks like you're going to need horses to get over the Rocky Mountains, the Shining Mountains. Uh, I happen to have these wives, both of them are Shoshone. If you take us along in the spring when you go west, when you get to the base of the of the Rocky Mountains, that's Shoshone country, and my wives will help you to interpret amongst these people so that you get the horses that you need to haul all of your gear over the Rocky Mountains. So I think about Charbonneau, I'm always really impressed by him. He immediately understood that there were needs in the expedition that he could supply, and in a, in a way, nobody else could. And he looked beyond the, the immediate work as an interpreter and saw that he might possibly be able to attach himself to the expedition in a larger way and therefore profit by it. And so he he's a sort of an entrepreneur, but he, in some respects, was also a sort of a rascal and a schnook. Lewis never liked him very much. Clark came to like him. But during this period, the captains have a, a quarrel with Charbonneau. And Charbonneau gets very high-handed with them. He, he overplays his hand. Charbonneau comes back from a trip somewhere up towards today's Winnipeg. Up with the Northwest Company, the British Canadians, the enemy. And uh, Mr. Chabollier had given him a very large outfit of items. Cloth, blue cloth, 
red cloth, a pair of corduroy overalls, one vest, 200 balls in powder, two pieces of tobacco, three knives. So Clark reports all this, whether Charbonneau got these as, as payment from the Northwest Company, and then he's in turn going to trade them with the native peoples or, or just what the arrangement is, we're not certain, but Clark discovers that Charbonneau has been with the Northwest Company's on-site leadership and Charbonneau has come back with all these goods. And Clark reports that the captains are worried that this has turned his head, that, that Charbonneau's really cooperating too much with the Northwest Company, possibly undermining the expedition, bad-mouthing it or undermining it or revealing secrets about its purposes. That it's not simply a trade expedition as they told the British that they were also laying claim to the land that was theirs legally through the Louisiana Purchase, but wasn't yet in fact among folks who just couldn't care less about some legal mumbo-jumbo on a sheet of paper far, far away. And this upsets them that Charbonneau is not exclusively devoted to their own interests. When they hired him, they said, you, we'll let you do some interpreting for the Canadians, but you must be primarily our guy and you must be loyal to us and you mustn't, under any circumstances, uh, badmouth us. When Charbonneau comes back after this hunting trip, he's all puffed up apparently and he has all this merchandise. And so the captains are pretty sure that this is not good news and that now they're going to have to either discharge him or rebuke him, but that things are not right with Charbonneau. And just about that time, Charbonneau goes on his, his strike. He had taken his things across the river. And he moves out. We learned that he moves out of the Fort Mandan compound and pitches a tent nearby. And he lets it be known to the captains that he's not going to do any physical work. He's not going to stand guard. If anybody upsets him in any way, he reserves the right to quit. If miffed with any man, he wishes to return when he pleases. On a moment's notice and come back to the Mandan and Hidatsa villages. He simply refuses to commit to the entire journey and makes it clear that there may be conditions under which he'll decide to throw in the towel and return home. Well, Lewis and Clark hear this, and they immediately say, well, great, we don't need you. If those are your conditions, they're unacceptable to us. Inadmissible. And therefore, we discharge you, and Clark says there was no written document of hiring Charbonneau. We suffer him to be off the engagement, which was only verbal. And so if you're going to be a jerk about it, and offer us conditions which we cannot possibly accept, then we'll just let you go. Uh, thanks very much. So Charbonneau broods for a couple of days and thinks that he's more important to Lewis and Clark than he actually is. But Lewis and Clark were actually wrong about this, though how could they have known? We all, over 200 years later, know the name of Charbonneau's wife, Sacagawea. Known by Lewis and Clark snobs as Sakagawea because of the role that she did play. Yet at this point, she was so seemingly unimportant to them 
that they didn't even call her by her name. Charbonneau determines on not proceeding with us as an interpreter under the terms mentioned yesterday. And when he finally realizes that he's not going to get away with his strike, Charbonneau capitulates. His demeanor changed. He sends a French messenger to Lewis and Clark to say, look, uh, he overplayed his hand, he regrets it. He was sorry for the foolish part he had acted. Yes, he'll agree to all of your conditions. Please forgive him. Notice that he sends an emissary to Lewis and Clark before he comes himself. And when Lewis and Clark hear this, I'm sure they laughed. And I'm sure they had a serious discussion at this point. Do we want this guy or don't we? He's trouble. Um, he had absolutely no right to try to set conditions. Um, he's not a very admirable human being. But maybe we do want him because if he brings his Shoshone wives with him, it's possible that they may be useful to us at some point at the base of the Rocky Mountains. And this is the exact same debate that we still have to this day. I'm sure you've had it in your life too. How much do we put up with someone who's a handful to put up with if we could really use their help with something? Where's that line? And so when the French emissary comes to Lewis and Clark and says, look, Charbonneau, sorry, he'll accept all your conditions. Uh, he'd like to be uh, uh, back on track with you. Lewis and Clark summon him. And Clark says, there was a conversation. I would give anything to have been a part of that conversation. Now, Charbonneau didn't speak English. He spoke French and he spoke Hidatsa badly, we learn. So he spoke English Maybe not at all, but certainly only a handful of words. And so when Lewis and Clark have their confrontations with him, the one which led to the strike and the one which ended the strike, uh, this has to occur through uh, a translator, probably Francois Labiche. And so Charbonneau says what he has to say in French. Labiche translates that to English. He agreed to our terms. The captains think about it. They reply in English. Labiche translates that back into French. We agreed that he might go on with us. And eventually they, they come to terms and Charbonneau uh, throws up his hands and accepts the employment of Lewis and Clark along the lines of their own conditions. And we learn from Clark that Charbonneau actually then is inducted in, as a private into the United States Army. And great job as always, Alex, and that's our 23rd feature of the most epic road trip ever. And thanks as always to our Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. And you can learn more about Clay and his work at clayjenkinson.com. This is Lee Habib, the Lewis and Clark story, America's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, all the things that matter in life. You're about to hear the story of an American who is considered to be the greatest athlete to have ever lived. In 1951, radio broadcaster Bill Stern reported the greatest athlete of the first half of the century was sick and penniless. Stern told his listeners, if you don't have any money, send him a card and let him know you still think about him. The two-time Olympic gold medalist is considered by many to be the world's greatest athlete ever to live. Whatever sport you happen to care about in America in 1912, Jim Thorpe did it better than anybody. I mean, if you were a track and field fan, he was the greatest runner in the world. If you were a baseball fan, he was one of the greatest baseball players in the world. If you were a football fan, he was the greatest football player in the world. He happened to be one of the great billiards players of all time, although people don't really know that about him. After five decades, Jim Thorpe's life still plays like frontier fiction. He was born in a one-room cabin in Oklahoma Indian Territory, just 12 years after the Battle of Little Bighorn. He has a kind of mythic quality. His life story was very dramatic. He kind of touches on all of the American themes about the frontier. He's kind of a half a modern sports figure and half a kind of Paul Bunyan American mythic figure. There must be something in the Thorpe legend for people to still be talking about him 50 years after he's dead. The way he played the game so embodied the warrior spirit that Americans cherish in their athletes that it has carried Thorpe all these years and makes him in many people's minds as alive and vivid as he was back then. The specific source of Thorpe's warrior spirit was his Sac and Fox Indian tribe. On May 28, 1888, Jim and his twin brother Charlie were the progeny of Hiram and Charlotte Thorpe. Their father was half Irish and their mother one quarter French, but it was her Indian blood with which she identified. Thorpe lost his brother Charlie from pneumonia at age eight, and both his parents died when he was a teenager. As a child, the rambunctious Thorpe became his athletic father's protege, at times running 15 miles home from school. Jim, how'd you get here? He ran. You ran 15 miles? Only 12, Pa. I came through the hills. I never was content, he said, unless I was trying my skill in some game against my fellow playmates or testing my endurance and wits against some member of the animal kingdom. Although he showed immediate promise, Thorpe was only a star in his schoolyards. That changed in the spring of 1907. Attending Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania, Thorpe decided to jump in with the runners during track practice one day. Either I need a new watch or we've got a new runner. Carlisle's football and track and field coach, the legendary Pop Warner, immediately met with Thorpe. 
You're Jim Thorpe. That's right. Glad to meet you, Jim. I'm Pop Warner. It's quite an exhibition you put on this morning. Exhibition? But you know what you did? You ran the 2.20 and 23 seconds flat with your clothes on. Why haven't you come out for the team? Well, I... I hadn't figured on coming out for the team. You just run for exercise, is that it? I don't rightly know why I run. Then Thorpe saw the high jumpers practicing. Hello, Jim. Like to take a whack at it? Go ahead, it won't bite you. He was walking with a couple of uh, friends from the school over, and there were a couple of guys struggling in the high jump. Yeah, get some lift into it. And, and he watched it, and Thorpe handed a couple of books to his friend and went over and jumped over five feet, eight inches in the high jump, the same height these guys have been struggling at. He had never high jumped before, and he was in street clothes. Two years later, the five foot, nine and a half inch, 144 pound Thorpe added the first layer in what would become a national mythology when he almost single-handedly beat the opposing track and field team. Pop, it's 2.30, the meet's supposed to start. Well, let's get started. Well, where's your team? Right here. Now, wait a minute, you're joking, aren't you? This is Louis Tawanama. He runs the mile, two miles, three miles and up. And this is Jim Thorpe. And what does he do? Everything else. Get on your mark. Frequently, during these track meets, Jim would compete in eight of the events. At the conclusion of these events, on the average, he would have garnered six gold medals. After it was all over, Thorpe couldn't tell you how he did it, said Coach Warner. Everything came natural. If he wanted to do something athletically, he didn't need coaching, he needed just to kind of observe it. He would watch and he would stare and he would see how things happen and then he could go out and do it himself. Then Thorpe saw the game of football. He wanted to play football, but Pop Warner didn't want him to play because he didn't want his uh, star track man to get hurt. Finally, Pop just said, well, okay, we'll give you a tryout. Threw the ball at him and says, okay, you're going to go through tackling practice, and this is a first team, and, and go. And he ran through the whole team. Pop got all over his team members and saying, I want you to hit him and put him down and make him stay down. And they gave him the ball again, and he ran through the team again. So he, Pop Warner made him a team member after that. <laughs> Thorpe was named All-American as a halfback, defender, punter, and place kicker. He was so elusive as a runner. The men who played against him remembered how he would give you a hip and then take it away. He'd, he'd let you think you could tackle him, and then all of a sudden he'd be gone. The hip would disappear, and you'd see his heels. Thorpe could also run through would-be tacklers. Future Notre Dame head coach Newt Rockney learned that the hard way. He was playing left end for the Maslin Tigers, and I was playing left halfback. He slipped through and tackled me for a couple of yard losses, and I patted him on the shoulder. I said, young fellow, you're doing wonderful. But look at all the people up here in the stand that come to see old Jim run. How about letting old Jim run? So the next time I carried the ball around, I hit him in the head with my knee and hip and bowled him over and went on down for a 60-yard touchdown. So after the point, after touchdown, here come poor old Rock with a player under each arm and, and all wetted down with a sponge and I walked him and patted him on the shoulder. I said, that a boy, Rocky, let old Jim run, didn't you? By 1911, Thorpe raised Carlisle to the top echelon of collegiate football. 48, 26, 32, 97, 41. Harvard laid claim to the national championship. 
But before they could do that, they had to play Carlisle. And the Carlisle Indians beat them. Jim, with a badly swollen ankle, ran for 173 yards and kicked four field goals, the last being 48 yards to win the game 18 to 15. Then came that grand summer of 1912. Thorpe shared his plan with Coach Warner. What's on your mind? I want to go over there, to the Olympics. I want to make a record they won't be able to ignore. Good boy. That's the spirit. Which event would you like to compete at? What events are there? It's the 100 meter, 200 meter, the hurdles, the pentathlon. Pentathlon. That's five events, isn't that's it? That's right. And this, the decathlon. That's ten events. Yes. Enter me into both of them. Jimmy, you're crazy, am I? That's 15 events. You'd be competing against the greatest athletes in the world. Pop, I've worked hard. Will you help me? Will you? You know I will. Here's sports historian Bert Sugar and gold medalist Billy Mills. On the boat going over to the 1912 Olympics, Mike Murphy, one of the coaches, finds Thorpe in a hammock and says, Jim, aren't you going to practice? And Jim, with his eyes closed, goes, I'm just picturing how far I'm going to jump. Jim Thorpe not only trained physically on that ship, but I think he was one of the few athletes training mentally. Today, visualization, imagery. And when we come back on this day in history, more on the life story of Jim Thorpe. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and it's, it's time for more of our story and our This Day in History, and it's Jim Thorpe's story. It's a story everyone should know, and if you ever get a chance to see the movie, Burt Lancaster does an amazing job in his life story. And as always, this is brought to us by Hillsdale College. Let's go to the next part of this story. When Thorpe stepped off the boat in Stockholm, his exotic appearance and long shambling strides intrigued the Swedes. The Swedish fans began to call him a horse because he had kind of like a gait of a horse. And uh, they would go every day to the stadium to see the horse. And damn if the horse didn't win every day. Jim Thorpe, who had never competed in a decathlon in his life, starts off with a pentathlon and in one day wins he dominated the first event in the decathlon, which was the 100 meters. His shot put was better than anybody else's in the field. So by the time you get to the fourth event, it's pretty much over. He won by 700 points, and that's kind of like winning 15 to nothing in a baseball game or 45 to nothing in a football game. To give you an idea how good he was in the decathlon, his total points were being achieved in 1924, 28, and 32. As many as 20 years later, they were only doing what Thorpe did. His performance in Stockholm was one of the highlights of Olympic history. Afterwards, King Gustav said to him, Sir, you are the greatest athlete in the world. To which he replied, Thanks, King. Well, being crowned the uh, greatest athlete of the world by the King of Sweden, I think, was one of my great moments in my life. Here's gold medal decathlete Bruce Jenner. The title World's Greatest Athlete goes along with the Olympic champion in the decathlon. And it is a legitimate 
standardized test of a person's athletic ability throughout history. He was world class in probably five or six events. Barring none, the greatest decathlete to ever live. Two days after the track portion ended, he actually played an Olympic baseball game. Baseball was kind of an exhibition event in 1912, and the Americans got their best athletes, and they put Jim Thorpe out there in right field. Thorpe returned home a star. When the boat docked in New York, they were given a ticker tape parade. Uh, and Thorpe was put in the back of an open automobile and driven down Broadway, and uh, people simply called his name and shouted his name. Thorpe is purported to have said, geez, I never knew a, a guy could have so many friends. Thorpe picked up where he left off for Pop Warner's Carlisle football team. He ran spectacularly in a 27-6 Army win. In a Thanksgiving snowstorm, Thorpe had three touchdowns and two field goals in a 32-0 victory over Brown. He was named an All-American again. Two months later, Worcester, Massachusetts Telegram discovered Thorpe's pay-for-play past. During the summers of 1909 and 1910, Thorpe was paid, reports have him earning from $2 a game to $35 a week for playing minor league baseball. This is a very serious charge, Mr. Thorpe. Do you have any defense to offer? I don't know what to defend. I can't see that I've done anything wrong. You did accept money. Yes, for room, board, and expenses only. I wasn't playing for the money that was in it. I like baseball. It seemed like a good way to keep in training over the summer. He naively used his real name, unlike other collegians that adopted pseudonyms to foil amateur rules. But I didn't know about these rules. Jim, ignorance is no excuse. In January 1913, Thorpe was stripped of his amateur status and with it, his two Olympic gold medals. After leaving Carlisle, Thorpe signed to play baseball and be a gate attraction for the New York Giants. In 1915, Thorpe played two football games for the Canton Bulldogs for a pricey $250 per contest. It was a game that uh, had probably hit its biggest bumps in the 19-teens. Pro football was gambling infested. Uh, uh, they didn't tackle. Games were fixed and uh, ringers were brought in and, and all kinds of charges were made against uh, pro football. Pro football was regarded, I think, by the press somewhere in the vicinity of pro wrestling as an exhibition, really. Thorpe legitimized pro football. He was the first major successful hero who played under his own name. He paved the way for other great collegiate football players to start playing in the NFL and not feel like they had to hide from it. The average crowd when Jim Thorpe was not playing in that era was 1,200. When Jim played, it was between eight and 10,000. From 1915, when he first signed with the Canton Bulldogs through 1919, there was just nobody that could compare with him. There were guys that could kick as well, or run almost as fast, or with almost as much power, or play defense almost as well. But no one could do all those things so well as him. He decided to stay on as the biggest drawing card for a team that would be recognized as world champion in 1916, 1917, and 1919. This was an athlete that America would have learned about solely through the newspapers. There was no broadcasting. Very few people ever saw Jim Thorpe perform. Jim Thorpe's reputation and stature as 
the greatest athlete of the first half century, came as a result of his achievements. I think it's remarkable that he became such a figure of prominence, basically on his own ability, his own performance, and through word of mouth in this country. He was doing athletic feats that nobody previously had done in a number of different sports. I really believe that Jim Thorpe was a physical mutation. Max Bear wanted him to be a boxer. He, he actually uh, sparred with Max a few times, and Max said that he could have been a champion. He even went to Boston one time and won a ballroom dancing contest. Jim Thorpe, ballroom dancer. Some of them that asked if he could do something, and he'd just get up and do it. He didn't ever feel that he, he had to train to, to become a good athlete. He was a natural athlete. fields were slower and boggier. They had terrible shoes. Their jerseys were stuffed with flannel. And when they got wet, they weighed 15 pounds. He could run like that with all that crap on him. My God, how great he must have been. LaDainian Tomlinson has it much easier than Jim Thorpe ever had it. Thorpe signed with the Chicago Cardinals to make one last appearance against the Chicago Bears on November 30th. 1928. When you take it again, I tell you. Okay, Jim. Take fullback. 32 on two. Jim Thorpe played a few minutes, but was unable to get anywhere. One reporter wrote. One, two, three. In his 40s and muscle-bound, Thorpe was a mere shadow of his former self. Thorpe's days as a competitive athlete were over. Without sports, Thorpe drifted. His drinking, an issue before, became destructive. There were many fights and almost as many jobs. He took odd jobs under assumed names, working as a painter, ditch digger, deckhand, auto plant guard, and bar bouncer. The 50s brought him renewed fame. Besides being voted the greatest athlete of the first half of the century by the Associated Press, with Babe Ruth placing second. He was portrayed by Burt Lancaster in the 1951 film, Jim Thorpe, All-American. Thorpe died at 64 of a heart attack on March 28, 1953. His body was moved to Machunk, Pennsylvania, a small town that changed its name to Jim Thorpe. It was not until October 13, 1982, that the International Olympic Committee finally agreed to restore Thorpe's gold medals. Thorpe became a charter member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, where a life-size statue of Thorpe adorns the lobby beneath the dome of the rotunda. He was voted number seven among ESPN's 50 greatest American athletes of the 20th century. In a poll of sports fans conducted by ABC Sports, Thorpe was voted the greatest athlete of the 20th century out of 15 other athletes, including Muhammad Ali, Babe Ruth, Jesse Owens, Wayne Gretzky, Jack Nicholas, and Michael Jordan. There wouldn't be an NFL without Jim Thorpe. He gave the league credibility as its first president and on-field star. Today, we know him most from faded photographs and newspaper articles. Yet his legend 
runs on. We hear the faintest echo of what he was, but it's loud enough. Had anybody been there to see the real thing, I think we'd call him hands down the greatest player who ever lived. And there you have it. And this day in history, always, Greg Hengler does such a great job. And what a life story. And again, that Burt Lancaster performance is as good as it gets. And that movie's very modern in many different ways. And what Thorpe did, how he did it, the ease with which he did it. And as you're watching the signings of sixth men in the NBA getting $10 million a year, that Thorpe had no money, had nothing. This was a day when professional sports... Well, it wasn't very professional. And the athletes didn't get much. Kept beaten up. They played for the love of the game. And there's something to that. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. As always, our This Day in History brought to us by Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale comes to you. Check out their great online courses. The C.S. Lewis course is fantastic. Go to hillsdale.edu.